we can talk about anything and we can talk about all of the things and then just start kind of like Frankenstein monster put the episode together I say that when it's not actually me doing the work it's Carrie so Hi everyone, welcome to this latest episode of Medlib's Miscellany, a podcast that is talking about things from the medical librarian perspective. I am Tracy Shields and today I am joined by our friend of the pod and helpful person behind the scenes who is often doing um, a lot of unrecognized work because... She has to listen to our voices multiple, multiple times to get the transcripts done. Jen Monin. Hello. Hi. <laughs> Hello. So do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself, Jen? Gosh, what do I even say about myself? Um, so my name's Jen, and I live in West Virginia. I live in Morgantown, West Virginia. I uh, mm-hmm. started out kind of, I'm like one of the outliers. I'm like an accidental health science librarian, but I knew I wanted to be a librarian, like going out of my undergrad. So it was like I went, took a year off and then went into my MLIS. Um, okay. And then worked in a small rural public library for about two years and then um, ended up moving to Morgantown and got the job that I have now as a health science librarian. Very cool. So that kind of gives us our topic that um, you wanted to discuss today, which was transitioning to being a health sciences or medical librarian, which I think is pretty interesting because even though some of us kind of fell into being a medical librarian straight from the get-go, It's not as common, I don't think. I think a lot of people do transition maybe from other types of librarianship. And there are are often people asking, like, how do you become or how do you transition from being another type of librarian to being a health sciences or medical librarian? And I think that's a good, good place to start. In fact, there was, you pointed it out to us in our chat about the um, email that was in on one of the listservs. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So um, I I feel like one of the things that I noticed, and this likely could have been like my position in the public library. So I was, to give you some perspective, I was the teen and adult services coordinator slash reference librarian for a like countywide so six branch system. So I did all of the teen programming and collection development and outreach. I did all of the adult programming, collection development and outreach. Um, and I was the reference librarian. Oh, wow. So like in one 40 hour work week, I had what is three and a half or four full time jobs, depending on where you go, um, which is a lot. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And I think that that, that probably helped too. Cause I was doing, you know, I would do some teaching and I'd do planning and I would do like, I had my hands pretty much in everything. Um, mm-hmm. other than cataloging, didn't have to do that. And I'm very happy about that. Um, but I feel like because of that, there was so much that I did that I didn't realize would actually be helpful when I started in an academic library. Cause that was eventually my goal was to be, I wanted to be a subject liaison specifically. I wanted to be a subject liaison in the humanities, which is, you know, not a really tight <laughs> job market and competitive or anything like that. Um, but um, when I ended up uh, getting the job, I ended up applying for the job that I have now, partially because I did my MLIS practicum um, with a health sciences and professions librarian. So like from her, I learned a little bit about systematic reviews. I learned a little bit about like um, what all of that kind of looks like. Uh, She worked a lot with undergrads. I like co-taught with her a little bit. Her name's Hannah Schmillen. She's great and I really love her. Um, But they, we, we kind of structured my whole practicum around learning how to research in a discipline you're not familiar with. So I kind of had that background and all of the random things that I pulled in from being in a public library. So random Mm -hmm. teaching, random like collection development was in there, um, which collection development between academic and public libraries is vastly different, let alone health sciences and 
and public libraries. Um, there's some overlap, but like a lot of it is very different. Um, and so wait, so different in what way? Like in the philosophical approach you take or in not how? Yeah, I think I would say that it's different in the sense of of some some of it, I guess you could call this a philosophical approach because it's kind of at least the way that I was taught and the way that I did it, because six branches is a lot of branches to cover doing collection development for all of them, where it's like, Mm -hmm. if it hit, if it's medical or technology and it's five years old, it is off the shelf because it's better to have no information than old information. Um, If it's something like test prep, as soon as you get a new edition, you remove it where I know like some libraries will have, you know, oh, we have a nursing program. So we've got like seven different NCLEX over the last like seven years, which isn't exactly helpful. I mean, it's great to have one that people can use if they're studying, but also like seven years ago, test prep book isn't really ideal. Um, so it just kind of depends on like what you can do. Um, but mm-hmm. that I feel like is one of the different things is a lot of the collection development at my place of work now is all like journals and digital resources and big subscriptions that I don't necessarily have my hands on since I'm not on our collections advisory committee because we have we all Mm -hmm. like all of our subject liaisons have some collection development built into our jobs but we also aren't necessarily the ones in charge of it right you're just like hey we need to add a few books Mm -hmm. here is a list of books how many of what books on this list from vendor x would fit into your subject area right or hey we've like now it's like oh uh like last fiscal year we got hey we've got this surplus budget so here are these like one-time purchases look through the ones for your Mm -hmm. discipline and see like if they're helpful so i actually went through like a eighteen thousand line spreadsheet (laughs) because all of their subjects were ordered very bizarrely like it was like Mm -hmm. They were ordered alphabetically, so like medicine, and then it was like medicine, nursing, dentistry, and then medicine, nursing, dentistry, public health, and then the next one would be like public health is its own thing. So I like went through it. I eventually started like highlighting uh. the spread. I like saved my own copy because it was all on the browser version of, of Excel, and I like started highlighting things, and I ended up just sending it to the rest of the health science librarians like, hey, here's this. Like, This isn't all of it, but I did my best, so hopefully you don't have to dig through everything like I did. It took a long time. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's one thing I, I think if we're going to talk about skills that are transferable, Excel spreadsheet My skills are infinitely transferable between whatever kind of library you're in or actually any profession that you're in, it seems like. Yeah. If you can do something with Excel, you are ahead of the game. Yeah, Excel. I There was one um, meme I saw probably years ago now, but it was like interviewer how familiar are you with excel and it's like i hate it oh so you're very familiar then (laughs) (laughs) yeah i you know a lot of people talk about pivot tables Mm i am i have not learned pivot tables um i kind of feel like at some point i probably should Mm. but at the same time i don't want to be the person that knows about pivot tables yeah because I feel like once you become the Excel person, then like you are the mm-hmm. Excel person. <laughs> yeah, there's there's no there's no backing away from that. No. Once you're given that little touch of touch of God sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's just there's no getting away from it. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. <clears throat> so what what subject areas do you kind of focus on? In, in your current it, line of work. Yeah. Um, so I have mostly allied health disciplines. So I've got physician's assistants. Mm-hmm. I have athletic training, occupational therapy, physical therapy, um, speech therapy, and audiology. I just got... Um, I feel like there, I'm definitely missing some. Right now I have um, ophthalmology and... Um, I also have pediatrics, pediatrics, ENT, or ear, nose, and throat. Um, mm-hmm. 
I feel like I'm missing something. Yeah, but I'm mostly, the way our liaison areas are set up is that there are five librarians and we have five schools. So basically each librarian gets a school except for the School of Medicine because it has most of the programs. So it's very hard for like one person to handle that. Um, mm-hmm. So that is kind of right now a mix of all of us and we're evaluating whether or not that's it's that's going to continue to be the model. But um, yeah, I am currently the only librarian without a school. So I just have like a handful of random departments all over the School of Medicine. Yeah. And that's those are all varied enough. There's some overlap like there's or a little bit of overlap, mm-hmm. right? Like because if you're talking about speech therapy there's a little bit of overlap that might happen with ENT. Right. Because of just anatomical similarities and, you know, those are the same parts that get used. But the books are not the same. No. You know, an ENT book is not going to address the needs of uh, an audiologist. So Yeah, they're... I would think that's a pretty big learning curve to kind of figure out what the needs are, what's available in those subject areas, and what are kind of the the things that a lot of people use and ask to use. Like, you know, for example, ENT in my previous workplace was big on using Cummings mm. textbook. Yeah. And... um you know, a lot of those textbooks you can only get from certain vendors on certain platforms in certain ways. And so a lot of times you have to do your collection development based on what the demands of a particular field are and what they use. And if you start to tell them, oh, hey, we can't get that for you anymore, but here's this other one that's the same thing. They're like, oh, no, 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 that's not the same thing at all. Yeah, yeah. Even if it's still a big name textbook in their field that's not the one they they train on that's not the way they learn they their whole curriculum is on this one book or a set of textbooks and it can it can make for some interesting collection development issues yes especially when um when budgets are tight so um mm-hmm. for for those who don't know the sixth edition of bailey's head and neck surgery came out in either De- i think december it is a for an unlimited user ebook is for from the package that we have access to purchase from, right? So I'm not sure if it's the same for everyone else, but for us, it was going to be roughly <laughs> for that ebook, which is like a lot for one book. <laughs> Granted, you know we have yeah. a whole campus, and it's it would be used by medical students and like anyone else. Like if you know they've got like peds information in there, like it would be like broadly applicable beyond like their program. But even like mm-hmm. that's like <laughs> so we ended up. But even with even with heavy use, though, you're probably going to get a very small number of people right. who are going to be clicking on that book. Right. But it's the it's the resource that they train their residents on. It's mm-hmm. the resource that they use literally all of the time. So when we first came back and we're like, yeah, we cannot get this for you. They we ended up they ended up working with us to figure something out to be able to get the book. But that I feel like is the rare mm-hmm. condition, and that was right before uh, we our institution started getting into like some budget issues and concerns going forward. So we kind of happened to I think we like snuck that in there like right at the at the ninth hour even though we didn't know we were doing that it's amazing where all of a sudden you can find money yeah so and thankfully it's a one-time purchase but even then it's like okay well this is a massive thing which then Mm -hmm. goes into a whole other conversation about open access resources and like open educational resources and one of the things that I've personally found being in health sciences is that one of the barriers that I've had faculty talk to me about is that they don't want to use open access resources because they don't want to inadvertently damage their students and like set them behind with board exams because all of the exams are based on the textbooks that everyone has access to at their institutions. So then that's the books that they get for their institutions to train their students. So they do the exams. That's what the exam is built on. So it's just like this whole like circular thing and then we I feel like 
we, um, a lot of librarians will use like lists, you know, it's, especially if you have a ton of hats, you don't have time to sit there and go through Mm -hmm. everything and be all the really nitty gritty, like in-depth things all the time. So it's like, oh, if there's this convenient list of like making sure you have all, all those essential titles and it's, it's just easier, I feel like, um, Mm-hmm. And I'm guilty of this too, like that it's, you know, you can go to those, you trust them, you know that they're going to be what they say they are. Um, and then that perpetuates the cycle where we're not having, not having access to things in a more cheap way for not only us, but for students. Mm-hmm. No, it makes sense to me. And it really, boy, we could probably, and I feel like <laughs> I, I say this so much for, we could have a whole episode about open access things whether it's the journals, whether it's the the textbooks and open education sources mm-hmm. and things like that. but And I will Ooh, preface, yeah. I will uh, qualify everything I just said by saying I am not a collection development librarian. It is a piece of my job and it is not a large piece of my job. This is just what I have noticed yeah. in my short time here. Yeah, but I mean, it's, I mean, going back to kind of the skills that transition and the things you have to learn, so those are the things that we have to learn, even if you're not directly involved with collection development, is if you liaison with a certain department or a certain specialty or whatever, you've got to know their stuff, mm-hmm. you know, their journal, their big journals, their titles that they, they want. Because, and not only know those titles, but often know the shorthand for those titles. Yeah. Like, so many journals in so many different fields are by color, you know. <laughs> I haven't and, run into that part, but I can so, see it. <laughs> you know, there, there's in OBGYN, there's the green journal. Well, there is a major journal for psychiatry has a green color and the psychiatrist will refer to it as the green journal. They are not the same thing. And that is not their official title either. But everybody calls them the Green Journal. So, you know, it's, you have to learn what their stuff is. You have to learn sometimes enough about, you know, the medical terminology, which it, it's not easy to learn medical terminology no. if you have not been exposed to it. And, you know, not to, not, not to denigrate public librarians, but if you have been mostly working with people and suggesting to them doing reader advisory and you know trying to get them to to read something other than John Grisham or James Patterson you are not going to immediately pick up necessarily on the terminology in medical librarianship and understand the very different publication structure that happens with academic publishing as opposed to the commercial publishing that you see with fiction and nonfiction and and things like that because they all have similar problems and there are definitely skills that transfer but it can be vastly different too and I don't I don't know how there there's not anybody unless you have a mentor you kind of have to pick up on this stuff on Mm -hmm. your own because there's not like a class you can take that tells you you know well the green journal is OBGYN and the white journal is and I'm blanking on what the white journal is but like there's all these journals that go by colors you know in medical libraries and knowing just that they exist and it's not just journals it's books too Mm -hmm. like there's the red book there's the orange book there's the purple book and I'm like what are these things like nobody tells you what these things are right the red book is actually called the red book and yeah. it's, yeah. you know, infectious diseases. <laughs> are those two, th- I mean, are, is that intuitive? No, no it's, it's really I mean, not. You know, and if you ask a public librarian about the red book, they start thinking about, oh, you know, is it a children's book? Is it, you know, the, the book with the crayons or, you know, <laughs> I don't know. I, I mean, there's, it's, I would think it would be very difficult to make that transition. It is, and it also isn't. I feel like that 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 example specifically, you're like, okay, the book, like the red book, right? It 
gets me thinking, mm-hmm. my old public library brain thinking about um, all the memes of the displays that are just like, it has a red cover <laughs> and it's just only red books. <laughs> um, and uh-huh. I think one of my, f- that's really where like the reference interview skill comes into play. Like being mm-hmm. able to, okay, well, what do you know about this red book? Like, do you remember anything about the plot? Like, do you remember like where you saw it in the bookstore or like kind of asking those open-ended questions that get them to tell you more about what their actual goal is and then being able to take that and use your librarian skills of searching and and sometimes just being better at googling than people are <laughs> in order to find right. it um and it's it's <laughs> yes i'm just looking up the catalog and meanwhile you're googling it i this is probably very <laughs> I mean, very bad of me but i feel like when i'm when i can't find something that i know i should be able to find like i'm I, if I don't immediately find it in the catalog or I don't have enough information, I just go to Google. It's like I, especially mm-hmm. with public libraries, right? It was like you would have people come to the desk. Occasionally you'd have a line, like you'd be trying to do multiple things. Then you'd get a phone call in the middle of it. And you're like balancing like multiple requests all at the same time that all are br- broadly different needs like you might be proctoring an exam at the same time that you're helping someone find like cochlear implants um and information about that mm-hmm. which actually happened to me once um was like <laughs> i was gonna say that sounds like a rip from the from life. yes and also trying to fix the printer with toner and and talk about like the codes that are the um oh like the books of like the state codes that were there and feeling like they there's a missing volume and just like all of these random things at once that are like very broad and very different and then having to separate them and keep them separate which is similar ish I imagine because I'm not I haven't started clinical librarianship yet but we're like working on that um I imagine to trying to keep all of those questions separate and your notes separate so that way you can get them the information that they need like at the same time like in a timely manner Mm -hmm. without like getting it all confused together um and then also being able to make sure that you're doing a good job and actually getting them what they need so it's like yeah they're even as I've been like, we have a, a bunch of open positions. So I've been on a couple search committees in the last the last couple years. Um, even as I've been on those committees and like as public librarians will apply and like I, they don't necessarily point out skills that I'm like, because I was where you were, like I know you're selling yourself short here. Like you're not talking about like all of the actual, you know, if you were a teen librarian or you did worked with like kids, right? You're not, they weren't necessarily selling themselves on all that teaching that they did where it's like, mm-hmm. you know, the younger they are, the more, and sometimes the older they are and sometimes whatever age they are, you have to have that persona and that like teachability in order to keep the quote unquote class engaged, right? You have to be able to keep your audience mm-hmm. engaged. You have to be able to tailor everything you're going to do for them and for that particular audience which is really transferable at least I found it to be transferable Mm -hmm. so that's a great point because I think because of our field in general but medical librarianship in particular I feel is willing to give people an opportunity to learn on the job Mm -hmm. because we know there's not courses and and programs that are I mean there are some that have medical librarianship focus but there are very few of those and so most people have to learn on the job in some way whether it's an internship or less formal and just hey you've got good skills and we're willing to invest a little bit to teach you what you need to know to do this job and a lot of people don't know how to market themselves or sell themselves and their skills in a way that is understandable. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if it's just kind of that we're not good at doing that sort of thing in the first place for, you know, whatever reason, you know, it's too much ego showing or or whatever it is. Or if it's just that people aren't good at that sort of thing in the first place. But 
like what are with especially with you being on committees on search committees what are some of the things that people overlook you think that they should they should try to show off or at least highlight Mm -hmm. if they're trying to be a medical librarian or get into health sciences especially if they've not had that background already I think some, I'm, I'm going to preface what I'm about to say by saying that both search committees that I've been on were for like liaison positions. So doing a lot of instruction, a lot of working with students, faculty, and staff to help them succeed in whatever it is they're working on. Um, Mm -hmm. So at least as far as that's concerned, the thing that I have, I feel like people have missed is they've missed that they are the at at least in my experience and then I'm equating that to to applicants is that when you are the the head of that like your head of access services or you're you're doing the programs or you're doing whatever a lot of times you're also the library liaison for those people that you work with right like I Mm -hmm. um in my last job we actually worked with a local juvenile detention facility and we would take books to them every month um it would kind of be and then we did that same thing with a um nursing home so we would either take requests and then and we would take requests find what we could take that and then also take more so they could kind of shop around pick what they wanted whether it was something they requested or something else um and then we'd come and swap those out every month so it's like as far as those those people either the program directors or the teachers I was working with like as far as they're concerned like I am the face of the library to them like Mm -hmm. they're not they don't necessarily come into the building and see everyone else and see the space and attend programs. Like what they see is they see me. Um, and mm-hmm. I feel like that ability to like, that is something I don't think I ever saw anyone talking about of like, I, and you know, there are some positions that don't have, have that necessarily, but that is something that I noticed, at least as far as I was concerned, is like, I am the library liaison to like, um, oh gosh, what was this program called? Oh, I don't remember what this program was called. There was a committee that they were forming around the time that I was actually leaving that position, um, that was made to help students with IEPs or individualized education plans, um, transition Mm -hmm. from the school realm where they have that support to adult life where they don't have that support. Um, And that, I don't remember exactly what the name of the program was, but that was the committee that was coming together and the library was getting it on the ground floor and being a representative. And since I was teen and adult, I sat on that committee. Um, Mm -hmm. And that, you know, had representatives from the school, it had representatives from other businesses in town. Um, I think the local... um, jobs and family services was there like so all of those businesses all of those like other institutions I'm their direct contact like if they're going to reach out to the library most people tend to reach out to someone they know they don't necessarily cold email people so it's like they would reach out to me even if I would end up directing them somewhere else so it's like you are Mm -hmm. being that direct like liaison and face of the library right and there's a lot of skills that are built into Mm -hmm. that yeah a lot of those soft skills you know whether it's being able to communicate at different levels to people Mm -hmm. you know and being able to transition from you know just talking to a patron and then taking a phone call with the head of a department you may have the same customer service orientation for those, but you often have to have different, very different conversations with those people. Right. Those are skills that are transferable from anything. You know, if you have worked in a restaurant, you have amazing skills for a library because you can deal with d- difficult patrons. You can deal with rushes mm-hmm. you can deal with fast-paced environment and then it be absolutely dead and what do you do if you've worked in a restaurant and you've been a server or you've worked in, in, behind the scenes in the kitchen you have so many skills that are transferable mm-hmm. yeah you know and it's just how you present them 
And that's, I think you make a great point about that people don't see those and talk them up because they don't, and maybe this is because they don't see how that would transfer over, but or maybe they don't know enough about the medical librarian or a medical library environment to be able to see how those things, but you have to be that flexibility is a key, yeah. is a key trait that had to have in this field, I think in any field at this point, but, but especially this one. And I think, mm-hmm. I think there were two things that I feel like were from my first mentor that were really good advice that I've carried with me. Um, one of them and uh, is to actually like take job postings for jobs that you're interested in, not even if you're like not applying, right? Take a job posting of something that piques your interest and break it down. Like look at look at the skills that they're asking for, uh, pull out skills from the description, look at the stuff that's preferred skills and and like see how you line up with that. So mm-hmm. it's like you you're kind of and I still do this now of like okay you know we're moving I'm moving into a higher role with systematic reviews at my institution so like what is being asked in systematic review librarian position descriptions so I'll go through and I'll mm-hmm. like break them down it's like okay well this is kind of transferable and I'll I'll rank it as a hierarchy of like I definitely meet this criteria um, I I think that I could make the argument that I meet this criteria, but like ultimately that's the search committee's decision whether or not they agree with that. And then I don't meet this criteria yet. So it's like you're kind I'm kind of setting making a professional development plan for myself for mm-hmm. where I want to be, even though I'm not right. there yet. Um, right. And then the second thing that was shared with me was that it's not my job to say that I'm not qualified for a role that is the search committee's job like if if I apply and if they don't give it to me like that's one thing but they're not going to give it to me if I don't apply right so it's it's not my role as like a job hunter to decide that I'm unqualified you never know who's applying right that's a fantastic approach and I think you know I, I know there's been studies where showing, you know, there's a gender difference that women don't apply for jobs Mm -hmm. because they feel underqualified. Um, And like you said, it's not necessarily your place to make that decision. Mm -hmm. You may not understand how qualified you are, especially if, if you've been in a, in an environment where you don't see how much you've grown. Right. Right. You know, there's, I think in a lot of ways, we don't see how the skills that we've accumulated and how much we've grown professionally until somebody points it, an outsider points it out to us. And if you've been in the same place, you may not have that external feedback. Mm -hmm. And if you, even if you do, it may not be an accurate representation of how far along you might be right on a path. So yeah, that's that's a fantastic attitude to take towards jobs. I mean, all they can say, I mean, apply to everything, right? Mm-hmm. I they can yeah. only say no. <laughs> they can only say no. And like, you know, the worst that's going to happen is I feel like being embarrassed for and the only reason I say that is <laughs> the job that I have now, I actually applied for a different position before I applied for the one that I have at the same institution and mm-hmm. And, you know, when I met the successful candidate for that position, I was like, oh, I was 100% not qualified for that job. <laughs> like, I was very much not qualified for that job. Um, and I, you know, they they made the right decision. Like, they hired the right person. I completely agree with, the, with that decision. Um, but uh-huh. I still applied, right? Like, I still applied. And it wasn't, it right. wasn't until after that I was like, oh, yeah, like, I, you know... I don't know who was on that search committee, but they've worked with me now. Like, <laughs> they know that I'm around. They know what I do. Um, and, you right. know, I've been where I am for four-ish years now, and I'm happy with it. And that hasn't ever been an issue. So I don't really anticipate it being an issue. But I also have a very, like, chill, non-toxic workplace, which is a measure of privilege in and of itself. Yeah. 
Yeah, and you know, I'm I'm going to say something that may raise uh, raise some hackles with some folks, but I think you should apply for jobs even if you don't want the job. Interesting. Tell me more about that. <laughs> I so I think it's important to keep those skills. If you've been in a position for a while, and even if you're not interested in changing that position, I think it's good to occasionally apply for jobs that are are interesting to you or are similar to what you do, maybe except at another level or even something completely different and apply to them just to keep up the skills of having a good CV or resume, um, keeping your interview skills fresh and just testing things out to see how things go because sometimes you get opportunities that you didn't even think about you know you don't always have to apply for jobs only when you need a job or want to change sometimes it's I think it's good just to apply to kind of see what's out there and even if you approach it as as an ego boost to see if you get a call back and ask to interview, you can always politely decline and say, you know, I I don't want to go any further or, you know, I appreciate the opportunity, but I don't want to do it. And, you know, some people will be like, well, that might be wasting the time of the, the search committee and that's taking away from other valuable candidates or whatever. But like you said, I mean, that's that's not for you to determine right? That's the search committee. That's the people hiring to determine if you would be a good candidate or not. And I just think you, I think you occasionally, persons should occasionally apply to things even when they're not necessarily looking. That's really interesting. I'd never thought of it that way. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you reaching out to, I think, Carrie is how you became a friend of the pod, right? Yeah. Um, so, (laughs) so my husband, Matt, will be the first to tell you that he thinks that I am a little brave because I'm not afraid of cold emailing people. (laughs) (laughs) That is a seriously Um, important skill to have. (laughs) Speaking of transferable skills. (laughs) I'm not going to reply publicly, but I will cold email you and be like, hey, if you are willing, like, for an example, there was a someone I follow on LinkedIn that we were watching um, who works at a company that has a ton of open positions in the field of education research. And we've been looking at this company and we're like, we've never heard of it before. Like, what? Um, and then I saw it happened to come across my LinkedIn feed that they got promoted at that company. And I was like, I'm going to message you. <laughs> so I messaged and I was like, hey, like, congratulations. But um, if you're like, are you like, congratulations, this is great, blah, 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 blah. Then I'm like, if if you have some time, like, would you mind telling me a little bit about this organization, blah, 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 totally fine if you don't, whatever. Um, he ended up replying to me and said, like, yes, I'm willing to talk about it. What questions do you have? And then I replied with my questions and he never got back to me, right? But, like, I asked. Right, right. I asked. Um, but, like, that's first how I reached out to Carrie was she, uh, any time I need a systematic review example, I'll go to the librarians that I know who do systematic reviews, mm-hmm. who I know, I know I can trust that they have high quality methods. Mm-hmm. And because of Carrie's presence on Twitter, like I went to her orchid and was like looking through things. And I found a poster that she had listed in there where I was like, this is actually sounds really interesting. And I like tried to find it and I couldn't find it. So I, I'm, uh, DM'd her on Twitter and I was like, hey, like, is this in a repository anywhere? Could you, like, if, could you point me to it? Like, I can't find it, blah, 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 blah. And then ended up finding it, like, five minutes after I messaged her, even though I'd searched for, like, two hours. Yeah, <laughs> it probably wasn't that long, but yeah. yeah. Yeah, right. Um, and then with the podcast, it's like, I just, I love, I really like podcasts. I know when there's one that I like, and then to have it stop functioning makes me really sad (laughs) and it's like I just get disappointed it's like no I was really enjoying this like um and I didn't want to see that happen to this so I was like hey if you guys need any help like let me know um and then almost immediately it was like (laughs) here let's set up a meeting let's do this like let's talk um what do you need so yeah it's funny because uh Carrie and I had just been talking about 
things that we need for the pod. And one of the <laughs> things I was like, you know, we probably probably need a website, probably need to do something about like transcripts, you know, for inclusiveness and and to make it accessible for folks and you know, assuming that we want people to listen, which honestly I'm still kind of <laughs> a, a little on the fence about that. I'm like, people, people listen to what we say. Um, and then I listen multiple times if it makes you feel better. <laughs> well, when you have to do the transcription, yeah, you gotta, you gotta listen more than once. Right. But you know, mm-hmm. Carrie, Carrie messaged me. She's like, Hey, um, we we have somebody who wants to be involved. And I'm like, what? What? You know, we, I think we've done like <laughs> one episode. Like, well, who who wants to help us? Or you know, I don't I don't understand. <laughs> no, and I was like, oh hey, well, we were just talking. About you. She goes, I know, we were just talking about doing this, and I was like, yeah, let's you know. And just next thing you know, you're mm-hmm. unfortunately in a in a group <laughs> chat. And uh, getting unfiltered, Carrie and Tracy, and and yet you still stayed around. I, I don't understand it. I feel like I le- I've learned a lot from you two, and even just some of it is like, I feel like being, you know, like I'm an early career librarian, right? Like I'm the new kid on the block. And I feel like when you learn, when I see things, and it's like I had found myself like looking around and being like, does anyone, does anyone else? see this fire like does anyone else is this is it just me okay um and then slowly I've been finding my people who will be like no that is that is a problem because it's like you know the big names I feel like would would never mention it or it would just get if I did happen to bring it up like anonymously in a zoom or a question or something it would just kind of get glossed over and it's like oh okay so it must just be me and then slowly I've been finding people who it's like I'll bring something up and they're like no that actually is a problem like you're Mm -hmm. you're right that's a problem um and I feel like that um you two have been incredibly helpful for of like i'm not crazy am i and you're like no you're really not like you're what you see is you're legit like that's you're a, crazy that's a problem. anyway <laughs> yeah, right exactly um so i don't know i feel like that has been helpful just having i feel like for me one of those things that's really helpful is to have those safe people to ask stupid questions mm-hmm. and former public librarian like there is no such thing as a stupid question like you have like especially with public librarians like they are the ones who it doesn't matter what question you have they have heard a stupider question (laughs) they've heard a worse one um and having those safe people where you're like can I listen can I pick your brain about this like can I talk about this for a minute and have them be like yes like your your thoughts are valid like you're making good points um is really helpful which I guess technically counts as mentors, but I feel like I know you too well enough to know that I feel like if I called you mentors, you would be like, no, d- don't I, call us that. I, <laughs> so. I don't feel like we're mentors, more maybe uh, disruptors than mentors. But you need disruptors, though. <laughs> like, they're so important to have those people, even if, like, even if the change doesn't happen, right? Like, you right. need the people to be able to take advantage of the privilege that they have mm-hmm. um and and make those statements like for for example like i are okay at my institution we don't have tenure but we do have like a critical review year mm-hmm. and depending on how much experience you come in with you can sometimes be hired at a rank that's above that critical review year so you don't have to do it and i did not have that um so it was like there would be things that would be brought up and I would remember just sitting in meetings feeling so powerless because I couldn't, I'm like, I'm precarious. Like any of these people could be on my peer review committee and not like what I have to say about this. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, And that's, you know, especially with like the rank and tenure system, which is its own can of worms that I don't really want to get into. could be a whole a whole podcast series on its own yeah. <laughs> it's like yeah. is it, it like you know I, one of the things that I said was once I'm past this assuming that I pass it which I did it's like I want to be able to use that position and put my name on things that people who have not passed their critical review year are not comfortable putting their name on but are behind like I want to be able to actually do that and 
yeah, I feel like disruptors are incredibly important. I think you make a great point, and this is a I, I think this is a great conversation. And even if it's not the episode we thought it was going to be, <laughs> this is going to be in an episode somewhere. Because I think you make a great point about having safe people. There are safe people that you have out of necessity. And there are safe people that you propagate because that's just what you do. You know, that's the collegial professional friendships you develop as you go along. And they can kind of happen in the most unexpected and unplanned ways. And I find them so valuable because even when you're intentional about trying to find them, it's so difficult to really have them and to keep them Mm -hmm. and to develop that level of trust that is necessary to be a safe person like that. And they evolve over time, too. I mean, they're never static. But I think it's really important to have them. And they can be people within the field or it can be people outside of it. But having those safe, safe people and safe and safe places to have conversations where you may talk about topics that are problematic and however you want to interpret that problematic in good ways problematic in bad ways but to be able to have those spaces where you can talk about that um, and get a sounding board and to get not always to just rubber stamp yes you're 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 on the right track or whatever but also to have a relationship where somebody will will put you will take you aside and say you did something wrong Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. and and to say no, you were wrong about this. And as a friend and colleague, I am putting that relationship on the line by telling you, you did something wrong, or you you need to make amends, or whatever it is. Right? It doesn't always have mm-hmm. to be a positive thing. Sometimes the negative is more important than the positive. And I hope somebody would do that. Some of my safe people would do that for me. Because yeah. I think that's part of the, the the trust that you have in those spaces. That's important yeah, to have. I agree. And that's like the safe space and the safe person is what makes it so like that that piece is necessary. Like mm-hmm. it, it's it's already hard enough to take like bad feedback or or like critical feedback or hard hard things like it's hard enough to take that with a good heart mm-hmm. and to to be like okay this person is actually actually cares about me like I know that they care about me I know that they have like my best in mind right um and I I want to I want to take this a heart and I want to respond well I feel mm-hmm. like that component is hard and can be really hard. Oh, yeah. And when you have safe people, it makes it a little bit easier. Mm-hmm. It's still hard to receive critical feedback. Oh, I don't yeah. know that that ever stops Nobody. being hard. But, like, when you have a safe person that you trust, like, yeah, I mean, nobody, it makes it easier. Nobody wants to hear bad things or right. have bad things happen or, you know. But sometimes you need somebody to... Right. To have those tough conversations. Right. And I feel like, at least for me, the worst thing would be to 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 be the one that is in spaces that people genuinely just don't want there. Like mm-hmm. that it's it's, you know, the one that's making people feel unsafe to share or unsafe to bring up their ideas or like Mm -hmm. constantly like I mean to go back to an old librarian stereotype like we've always done it this way like we've tried that and it didn't work like you know I don't like I don't want to be that person Mm -hmm. and I feel like that critical Mm self-reflection is a skill you have to build and it's hard (laughs) I'm still growing in it I think I'm gonna grow in it my entire life where it's just it's hard yeah and if you yeah 
like you said, having those people who will be critical and share, like, hey, you actually were, like, a really big jerk in this meeting. Right. <laughs> Here's, here was why, and I don't think you meant it that way, and however. And I think you have to be careful and balance it out because it can yeah. too easily become a click, you know, the mean girl's mm-hmm. click of you, you can't break into it. That, that That's that group, right? Um, but at the same time, it's important to have those spaces because I think there are groups that very much need those safe spaces, whether they're a marginalized group, underrepresented, whatever it is, they need those places where they can vent their frustrations and yeah. talk about crappy behavior and have people validate it. Um, yep. And and feel safe to have that that ability to talk about it and not just perpetuate the the awfulness that can sometimes happen definitely and that's how carrie and i got talking too i mean i just we started interacting on twitter and then occasionally would dm each other and those dm conversations would get longer and longer and more varied and next thing you know look at us having a podcast so anything else you want to talk about since we got all over the place. We have gotten all over the place. We can do, I mean, obviously there can be other episodes where Carrie is involved and maybe not me, maybe both of us. I mean, there's all kinds of combinations that can happen, right? Yeah. I do think um, a mentorship episode would be good. I think so too. This podcast was hosted by Tracy Shields and Jen Monick with notes by Tracy Shields and edited by Carrie Price. Our music is Nerdy and Quirky by Music Town on Pixabay. 